Welcome to the Dear Nikki Mama podcast. I'm Ashley. And I'm Martha. And our mission is to connect the past and the present NICU mom by celebrating our stories and what our babies have overcome. Whether your NICU journey was 50 years ago or whether you find yourself in the NICU today, we hope that this podcast reminds you that you are not alone. Hi, mamas, and welcome back to the Dear NICU Mama podcast. It's your hosts, Martha and Ashley. Oh, friends, today's episode is so, so special. This episode is probably a year and a half in the making. (laughs) Um, Today, we're going to have the opportunity to hear Ashley's uh, NICU journey. I'm so excited because I think her story is powerful. I think she walked through it with incredible grace and wisdom, and I, I can't wait to hear you share about it. I'm so excited. I got my fuzzy blanket to cling on to for it. And just a forewarner, I am a crier. So if I cry at all throughout this episode, just be warned. <laughs> oh man, it's it's um again, I'm like so proud that you're my friend. And I'm so proud that you're kind of the leader of Dear Nikki Mama. And I, I think this is gonna be really special for the audience to hear. You know what I mean? It I think it'll make them feel like you're their best friend too. (laughs) You're so sweet. So let's talk about, you know, the start of your pregnancy. How did you find out you were pregnant? Were you planning to get pregnant? Yeah. So Ryan and I had been married for five years before we started trying for a baby. So when we got married, we we knew we wanted to pursue some like personal dreams, some dreams as a couple. And so we you know, we took that time to travel, to start some businesses, and really we're just having a lot of fun. And then you get to that point in life where you're like, hmm, something's missing. And so about that five-year mark, we started dreaming about starting a family and, you know, beginning that next chapter of our lives. And so I wasn't on any birth control, so it was just simply a matter of, okay, let's not use a condom and just see what happens. And first try... We got pregnant with Silas. Oh my God. So, I don't know if I knew that. <laughs> yeah, it was a first try thing. And so when we got pregnant, I really thought, you know, I looked at Ryan and I was like, I was made for this. Like my mm-hmm. body was made to have babies because, you know, we had had close friends in our life that had, you know, wrestled with infertility and struggled with infertility. And so we knew that that could very well be a chapter of our life as well. And so, when we got pregnant so quickly, I just kind of thought my body was made for this. This is this is going to be so easy for us. I can't wait for pregnancy. And so really our pregnancy conception journey was was really quick. <laughs> oh boy. I love I don't I know what you mean though. Like you have this you just you imagine so much about what your pregnancy is going to be like. Mm -hmm. And I think as women, you always compare your pregnancy journey to your mom's. And so, you know, my mom had very, quote, normal pregnancies, very normal and good deliveries. And so when we conceived so quickly, I thought, I'm just like my mom. This is going to be our story. And then it wasn't quite that way, but that's okay. (laughs) Yeah. And I, you know, I even remember seeing your pregnancy announcements. That's like how I first got to, I was like, who's this lady and why she gets to be pregnant? You know what I mean? Because I was like... (laughs) 
You know how you are with social media strangers. Totally. Yep. Um, but I remember he had super cute social media like announcement. And then you had like a funny one after. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yep, I do. And it was because your last name is Ham. So yep. what what was the, the, the phrase that you said? The funny one? Yes, the funny one. Um, <laughs> so we had a little picture of a um, toy pig, like a farm animal pig. Yes, yes. And I said, we've been busy boinking around. <laughs> That was so cute. I love that so much. We had to have like our cute announcement and then we had to have our goofy announcement. Yeah, but it was so fun. You know, truthfully, posting that announcement was a huge act of faith for us. And, you know, leading up to that announcement, we had many, many appointments. Yeah. So tell tell me then about the the beginning stages of your pregnancy. You know, did were you having symptoms? What was it like for you? Yeah. So truthfully, my pregnancy became high risk very quickly. So um, at at about five weeks, so like pretty much right after we conceived, I woke up in the middle of the night, not with cramping or anything. I just had to go to the bathroom. But when I went to the bathroom, there was bright red blood. And so I remember waking up Ryan and saying, Ryan, something's wrong. We need to go to the ER. And um, we had close friends to us that had miscarried and their sign of miscarriage was bright red bleeding in the middle of the night. And so immediately I thought it's happening, like I'm Mm. miscarrying. And so we drive to the ER and we get to the the window and the lady says, and what are you here to be seen for? And I couldn't make out any words. I immediately started wowing. And so Ryan had to <laughs> speak for me, which was very sweet of him. Yeah. Um, but we get into the room and, you know, since this was our first pregnancy, I had no really pre-knowledge of what an ultrasound would be like or feel like. I always envisioned it being the heartbeat appointment. And so to really determine if I had a miscarriage, they did my first ultrasound. So my first ultrasound was in the ER and it was transvaginal. So it was very painful. Um, and you know, because they're not technically the OB, it was very, just kind of very medical, very, we just have to see if baby's still in there. And so I remember they did the ultrasound and you're kind of reading the tech, like, what are they seeing? What are they, you know, what are their, what's their body language? And we didn't hear anything for a while. And then all of a sudden, they kind of left the door propped open just a little, and we hear the doctor say, I want to print this out for them. I want to print this out for them. Hmm. And so we didn't want to get our hopes up. We were like, what would he have to print out for us? Yeah. And so he comes into the room, and he has this beautiful 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper with this perfect little baby picture on it. And oh, my god! By, by perfect little baby picture, I mean it was literally a circle. It was just a mm-hmm. dot. But he said, this is your baby. Your baby is still there. Um, and so that is the first picture I ever got of Silas. So I really saw him basically conceived. Um, but it was so special. And so we came home with that um, that image. But it was also challenging because because of the bleeding, they couldn't dictate exactly why I was bleeding. Yeah. Um, and so they on my discharge papers, it said threatened miscarriage. Oh, and that's terrifying. So, yeah, it was terrifying. So the doctor kind of said, you know, he's like, I'm not an OB. I'm going to send you to maternal fetal medicine to just make sure that, you know, baby is placed right. Cause he's like, I don't know how to, you know, really read these things. But he said, from what I can see, baby is still implanted. And so we came home and I remember the next challenge was really just a mental game because all I could see in my head was threatened miscarriage, threatened miscarriage. And what he also mentioned to me was, is he said, this could be the start of a miscarriage and it could happen any day. 
or it could just be bleeding in pregnancy. I can't really tell you anything. <laughs> And so he set up an appointment for us with maternal fetal medicine. And at that point, I had no grid for what maternal fetal medicine stood for. I didn't know what that abbreviation was. And I remember going home and Googling maternal fetal medicine. And of course, you get a barrage of, you know, high-risk pregnancy, potential birth defects, you know, high-risk labor. And I immediately was super confused. I was like, wait, do they consider did something wrong? Like, why are we sent to a specialist? Like, I'm just pregnant. We don't even know anything. And so that week we had church small group. And I always envisioned telling my best friends, you know, about our pregnancy with like a cute announcement or like a balloon or something like that. And it actually was really special and heartbreaking at the same time. But we went around the room and they said, does anybody have any prayer requests? And I looked at Ryan and he looked at me. And it was just a raw feeling because this appointment had happened like a week prior. And we said, here's the deal. We're pregnant. We got a lot of congratulations. (laughs) And then we said, but we don't know if baby's okay. And so that was kind of our first announcement to Mm. our friends of our pregnancy. But it was also really beautiful because we got prayed over that night and Silas got prayed over. And I really did feel the presence of the Lord as we prayed for him. Um, And so that next week we went to maternal fetal medicine and I had another ultrasound and the tech was wonderful. She was so kind to me. Um, You know, she deals with high risk pregnancy every day. So she was very sweet and gentle and Mm. she knew my concerns. And I look up on the, on the screen and I see this little flicker, like a candle. And she says, you see that little candle? That's your baby's heartbeat. And immediately started crying. And it was just so beautiful to see his heartbeat for the first time. And with how they did ultrasounds there, they were able to send us a video. And so I watched that video every night before bed Mm. (laughs) and any time that I was worried. And so they said, here's the deal. Baby looks great. Baby's implanted well, but we are suspecting a hemorrhage. So we do want you to meet with your OB early to just determine if any you know, if anything needs to be done. And And can you talk a little bit about like what you're under, I mean, not that either of us are doctors, but what is your understanding of like what a subchronic hemorrhage is? Because it is so, it's never talked about. So Mm -hmm. when it happened to me, I was like, what the heck are you talking about? Yeah. I had no grid for that. None of my friends, close friends had had a subchronic hemorrhage. I'd never heard of that. Um, When I Googled it, that was a really bad idea. It's just really... Mm -hmm. And what I found was that it could mean different things for everybody. So it was really confusing on what was happening. Um, And so at that, again, I was only about six weeks. At that six-week appointment, I went in and um, the doctor said, here's the deal. You have what's called a subchronic hemorrhage, which is essentially a bruise on your uterus. And I said, well, but what does it mean when I keep bleeding? Because I was bleeding every day. So that was probably – The other additional hard part is that we were in the middle of wedding season, and so we were shooting weddings all over the Midwest, and so we were traveling and out and about, and every single time that I went to the bathroom, there was a little bit of blood. And even though they told me the bleeding is normal, the bleeding is good, it actually means that the bruise is passing, it never felt normal. There never was a moment where I was like, oh yeah, this feels really normal to have brown discharge slash blood when I'm pregnant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so at that appointment, she basically just said, you know, you have a subchronic hemorrhage and I'm just going to monitor you really closely. So we'll have you come in every two weeks until you get to like 16 to 20 weeks or until you start ble- uh, stop bleeding until mm-hmm. the bruise has passed. 
So every day, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Every day I was terrified. Every day I was convinced that I was miscuring because I was bleeding. Um, I was also pregnant at the same time that some close friends of mine were pregnant. And so it was challenging to, you know, you know, them being the bliss of pregnancy and me being in like this unknown season of like, I think baby's okay, but I don't know. I'm still bleeding. So even though I didn't have the normal quote pregnancy symptoms of like nausea and that kind of thing, I bled instead. Mm. <laughs> um, but every appointment was really hopeful. Um, at eight weeks, his heartbeat looked beautiful. I got to really hear it for the first time at that appointment. I was still bleeding at 10 weeks, still bleeding at 12 weeks. But when I got to 12 weeks, she said, I'm really encouraged with how baby looks. Um, she said, I have no concerns. We'll just keep monitoring you. I finally stopped bleeding at 16 weeks and that was kind of the start of like me feeling a little bit more secure in my pregnancy because I wasn't bleeding every day. Um, You know, I wasn't having that severe fatigue anymore. And so I started to feel quote normal pregnancy and excitement. Um, And then we got to the ultrasound, the gender ultrasound at 20 weeks. And then that's kind of when we got into like the next mini curveball, if you will. Yeah. I, I definitely think about it in phases with your journey too, because of course I, your, your NICU journey is like one of the ones I know best, right? Because, of, yeah. <laughs> because you talk about it a lot, but, um, I know, like you said, you get to that 20 week ultrasound and during the anatomy scan, I mean, how are you feeling? Did you feel like, oh, we've gotten to 20 weeks. I feel better now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we got to that scan, I was feeling a lot better. I was feeling a lot more hopeful. Um, it was this exciting period of finding that we were having a boy. And, you know, um, because we were considered high risk, any mama that's been seen by a maternal fetal medicine knows that your ultrasounds are a lot more extensive. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, they're a little bit more detailed and sometimes you leave the appointments knowing more than you needed to. You know, it's like his big toe was measuring an inch longer. Do you want to know if that's normal or not? You know, um, but can at you that imagine time- though, if he came out with like an inch longer toe, I'm um, really glad he did it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so at that 20 week ultrasound, we were ultimately really hopeful. Like I said, I wasn't bleeding anymore. And so they told us we were having a boy and then, we decided to do the um, the chromo- chromosome test to, for, you know, for Down syndrome or other things simply because we had had so many appointments prior We and with the hemorrhage, we just didn't know much about it. And so we knew that if there was any diagnosis, it wouldn't change how we felt about Silas or how we loved him. But it really was just so that we could better understand the pregnancy. And so at that chromosomal um results test, they kind of said to us, they were like, there's your inhibin levels are a little elevated. Um, we're not going to jump to any conclusions, but we'll just kind of monitor you for those. So again, I had no grid for what these things meant. Um, but it was just another thing to kind of have in the back of our minds. Um, at that 20 week ultrasound, again, because it was more extensive, they noticed like a slight concern with his heart. And so they just said, you know, there's something that we're seeing. Sometimes they grow out of it, but we just want to have it closely monitored. So at 24 weeks, we want you to come in and we'll just do an extensive heart ultrasound. And so we kind of mentally prepared for that. And truthfully, we weren't super worried. We were kind of like, you know what? Every other appointment has gone you know, pretty well. It's always been like a maybe but not really type of an appointment. And so 
When it came to the heart appointment, we weren't super concerned, but we were also kind of (laughs) naive. And so we went to the cardiac floor for that. And again, that was just a new experience for us because this was specifically, you know, pediatrics. Um, and they, that's what they specialized in was looking at the heart, looking at those very intricate ultrasounds. So it was just a different experience because you're not, it's not like you're in the OB with like the baby photos. You're in like this other technical room with like heart photos everywhere. (laughs) And so, yeah. Um, they kind of said, you know, you're not really going to get any pictures at this appointment. This is just simply to look at his heart. And so, um, the tech did the scans. We, you know, we kind of did the whole thing and then we waited in the waiting room and the doctor came in and she looked at us and she just said, we're going to need to do a plan of care or a change of care, a change of your plan of care. What, what did that even mean to you when you were sitting there? We had no idea what that meant. And right. so we were like, um, what? And she said, we see a concern with his heart. Um, I've looked at it with both my other tech that works here with my supervisor. All of us have taken a peek at his scans and we are seeing the same concern. And she said, at our specific hospital, we are not qualified to operate on that for that procedure, but we would love to refer you to um, – a hospital in the cities that can do this. And so this was just like a complete blow. Um, I remember looking at her and being like, is it okay if I just cry for a minute? And she's like, of course. And so I immediately broke into tears and she started to kind of explain to us what they were seeing and what they were seeing was a cork of his aorta. And so it was just a narrowing of his aorta. And they said, you know, it's a very, you know, the people in the cities are very qualified to do this. We're not seeing like any long-term medical interventions, but it is something that we want you to have available in case you would need it. Hmm. So then that got us planning for, you know, at 34 weeks moving to the cities temporarily in case he would come early so that we could be available. And the reason being so that if he would, you know, if he was born here, they'd have to air flight him there and they wanted to avoid that. And so it was really so that we wouldn't have Mm. to be separated. Yeah. So, yeah. So we got his heart diagnosis and then we just kind of waited a little bit. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, obviously you had had this time at the beginning where you're like, like pretty immediately you're like, okay, well, I'm bleeding. And so that's different than what you're imagining. And then you get to 20 and you're thinking, okay, well now I can go into this, what I, what I anticipated, the normal experience, mm-hmm. whatever that means. Right. But then all of a sudden it's the heart condition. It's having to deliver at a, a different hospital far away from home. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you process that over those weeks? And and how did you share that with your support system around you? Yeah. Um, so faith is a big part of Ryan and I's life and of our journey, our faith in Jesus. And so I remember we came home from that appointment. Sorry. <laughs> and I remember we just had no words. I remember we came home just with the words heart surgery, recovery, you know, in the cities, all these things. And it was just like a barrage of information. Yeah. And we recently did an episode with with Kayla and she talked about not having the words to pray. And that was yeah. exactly how we felt. We came home and we just felt numb. And at this time, <clears throat> there was a worship song that was released. And it talked about, you know, um, how he fights our battles for us. And so I remember we came home and we just laid on our bed 
we turned on the worship music and we just placed it on my belly and we just said god like we have no words we have no vocabulary for how to pray for this so you have to take it from here and um i remember that being such a profound part of our marriage because for the first time i think we really knew what it felt like to pray a vulnerable prayer that we didn't even have words for, you know? And so we just sat in that worship music. We played it over Silas. We started to declare healing and truth over him. And I actually lead worship um, at the church that we attend. And so we got this news on Friday and I was supposed to lead worship on Sunday. Hmm. And I, I knew in my heart, I knew that I could text my pastor and say, hey, I'm not feeling up to this. I'm not feeling up to leading worship. And they would have completely 100% understood. But there was this part in my spirit that just knew that I had to lead worship. It was the only thing that I could do. There was nothing, you know, they kind of reiterated to me at the appointment, like there's no interventions right now. It's really just a waiting game. There's nothing that you did or could do to really resolve it on its own. They said, really, we're just going to wait. And so I remember so badly wanting to text the pastor and at the same time feeling this feeling in my spirit of like, you need to lead worship over your son. Mm-hmm. And so that Sunday, I led that song that we prayed over him. Mm-hmm. And I just was like, God, there's nothing I can do. There's no medical intervention I can do. But this is how I will show up for Silas. And so I yeah. just led worship and I prayed over him. And that was a really, really powerful moment for me just to know that, like, God, this is all I have. This is all I bring you. Mm-hmm. But today it has to be enough. And I really did feel my faith being stirred. And I was just like, Lord, no matter what. Like, I will worship you and I will, this is how I fight today. And so I led worship that Sunday. And then truthfully, after that diagnosis, we were, of course, concerned. We were still monitored really closely, but it became relatively uneventful. My bleeding was still stopped. I, you know, was still working, still doing shoots, but we were just kind of mentally preparing to deliver in the cities. Yeah. Oh, that's such a big... um pivot that you had to make. And also it's like a big step in your marriage too, because Mm -hmm. you're just faced with a trial that you've never been through before. So I just am in awe of the way that you took care of each other um, and how your faith was central to that. I think um, you're such a great example of how when, when you don't know what else to do, like letting go of control of it is, is the only option, mm-hmm. um, you know, and in your instance and for people who are, you know, are faith believers that, that, um, you lean on that because there's nothing else to lean on can be really powerful. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and also it's you, without knowing it, I think you were, you were, um, setting the groundwork to, to care for yourself in what come, came next. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's kind yeah. of really, really beautiful. Um, I just applaud your marriage too and your vulnerability mm-hmm. with each other. Um, yeah. that obviously, uh, has made your journey, not that it was easy, but has made it bearable in so many ways. So mm-hmm. yeah. thank you for sharing that. It's such a vulnerable mm-hmm. thing to to do. And like I said, it's not like you live through this every day. So mm-hmm. I so appreciate your, your honesty and sharing these mm-hmm. moments. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, I mean, you get to this point, you have this news, you process through it and 
like the doctors say, there's nothing to do but wait. Mm-hmm. Um, when you are planning to deliver in the cities, you know, what, what did you start to do differently? You know, did you pack your bags differently? Did you make hotel reservations? Did you have family <laughs> down there? Um, how did you start addressing it differently? Yeah. So we did have family in the area there. And so we started saying like, Hey, there's a possibility we might need to stay with you for a season. Um, but we were so busy with weddings and wedding season that we didn't really start packing a bag or anything. Um, the holidays were also around this time. So it just felt like we were extra busy. So the only real, you know, concrete thing that we did was we set up an appointment to meet with the cardiologist over there. And so that was kind of the one thing that we had set up to kind of get us ready. But beyond that, we were just kind of waiting until we were closer to that 34-week mark. So we hadn't done a lot of planning. (laughs) Yeah. Which, well, I mean, I think is really common for like first-time pregnancies. You just, you know, Mm -hmm. they kind of set those guideposts for you like, oh, at this week you do this and this week you do that. And then you get like email alerts from your apps and stuff too. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Um, And I wonder too, like you mentioned the holidays were there and you mentioned you had a really dear friend who was pregnant at the same time. Mm -hmm. How did it affect the way you related to your family? Because inevitably you're pregnant, you're showing it's the holiday, you know, Mm -hmm. Aunt Lois comes up and says, how's the baby doing? You know, how did it feel to address those questions and to share it with your family? Yeah, it was always kind of this question of, do you want the short or the long answer? (laughs) You know, like, do you want to know how baby is really doing or do you want to just know how my symptoms are? (laughs) You know, and so we kind of, depending on who it was, we would share the, you know, extended version or whatever. But we were, when I was at 26 weeks, we were celebrating Christmas with some extended family. And one, you know, thing that we do every year is we go around and we share what's new in our life and what we need prayer for. And so, you know, we just shared, we're so excited to be pregnant. It's been kind of a turbulent pregnancy, just in appointments and not knowing and things like that. Um, But we just said, you know, we are potentially preparing for heart surgery. So just prayers for guidance and wisdom and all of that. And so that it was encouraging once people knew because it can feel so alone of like, you know, when we had close people pregnant at the same time as this, I just didn't feel like I could relate to the typical pregnancy bliss. You know, I remember, um, one gal, she looked at me and she's like, don't you just love being pregnant? Isn't it just so much fun? And I I was like, I love being pregnant because I love my son and I love his movement and just knowing that I'm carrying him. But I said, I'm not going to lie. This has been the hardest thing I've ever done because I have no control. And we had seen so many specialists at this point and so many different appointments. And, you know, I remember thinking it was odd that not everybody had every two week appointment pictures of their baby. Like I had so many sonograms of Silas, which is fun. And I was like, oh, that's not normal. Like, oh, you only get two pictures. Oh, I just thought that was standard. Mm -hmm. And so, so I think that was unique of just not having a close friend that had had a high risk pregnancy to really understand where we were coming from too. Yeah. I, I, uh, again, I applaud. I think you have a really great insight here about if you share the, you know, you take the step and you're vulnerable in that position, then you open yourself up to being supported too by mm-hmm. those people around you. Yeah. Um, and you know, in some cases, maybe people aren't ready to show up for you in that way, but then other people will rise to the top and they will come, mm-hmm. they will stand beside you. Um, 
because yeah. I think that's part of the trauma, right? Is feeling like you're completely alone in it and it's so different and no one will ever understand. It's so hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Christmas comes and goes and <laughs> I know what happens next in the story. <laughs> But share a little bit about what what happens in early in January. Yeah. So um, like I said, we're wedding photographers. And so at this point in my pregnancy, I was really nervous to travel. Um, I did not want to be away from our level three hospital. I just – or our level three NICU hospital. I just – I didn't know if an early delivery was possible, but I just wanted to be close to my doctors just in case. And so – this wedding in particular was two hours from home and it was over New Year's and I was really unsettled about it. I just, I was really nervous to be away and there actually ended up being a storm that came through. So we drove up the night, a night early and we stayed in a hotel and that night I woke up before the wedding, I woke up with just some really weird abdominal pain and I was like, this is so strange. It kind of feels like I'm hungry. It kind of feels like heartburn. I'm not totally sure what's going on. And I I had never experienced Braxton Hicks. So I was like, it could be that, but that's weird. I don't want that either. I want everything to be normal. And so I called my OB in the morning and, um, and I just said, Hey, I'm kind of having this upper abdominal pain. What do you think? And she's like, Oh, it sounds like heartburn to me. I would just take some antacids and just kind of watch it throughout the day. And I was like, well, I have a wedding to shoot today. <laughs> and she's like, okay, well, you know, if you need anything, just call us throughout the day. I was like, okay. So I shot a wedding and I started to really puff up too. I noticed that my cheeks were getting really swollen. And that morning before the wedding, um, we had stayed at the hotel with some close friends of ours and we were having breakfast. And I just said, you guys, I'm feeling really nauseous. I'm having diarrhea. I just, something feels wrong. And at this point I felt like I had become that friend that always felt like something was wrong. You know, I was like, Mm. I felt like I was always the one that was like, something just feels off. You guys, something feels off. And I felt like I was a broken record. And so I could tell that they were, you know, listening to me, but also like, okay, it's just Ashley having another concern about pregnancy. And so also, but who could blame you though at that point? You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. You've taken in a lot of information about your baby. And so you're constantly, I mean, that's part of high-risk pregnancy, right? Is constantly evaluating your symptoms. Right. For sure. And so I kind of had a little bit of a headache, but I just, I took a Tylenol and I was like, you know what? We're going to push through. So I shot a wedding Mm -hmm. and I look back on the pictures now and I was like, so swollen. I was like, I was a balloon, but you know, I thought that was normal. Like I had a close friend who had like super swollen ankles throughout whole pregnancy. So I was like, this is just what it is. And so I felt really off that day, but I shot the wedding and I, we came home that night and I went to bed and I felt awful. I woke, I was like, something does not feel right. So I woke up that morning and the pain in my upper abdominal had went away, but I really started to swell. I started to feel really weird. I felt really fatigued, which I thought could just be because I just shot a wedding. Um, but something was different. And so we went to bed early that night. I woke up in the middle of the night with extreme upper abdominal pain and it just was not right. And so I tried to sleep through it. I took some more heartburn medicine. I called triage and I just said, hey, I'm feeling this. And they said, it sounds like heartburn. I would just keep watching it. I was like, okay, but like it really hurts. I'm like, well, call us if it doesn't go away. And so um, it didn't go away. So at uh, five in the morning, I woke up and I could not, I could not handle it anymore. I was like, Ryan, something is wrong. I don't feel right. This is really painful. And so we got in the vehicle and um, 
every bump that we hit on the road hurts. Every pothole, every little bump was like excruciating because of this upper abdominal pain. And so I got, I went up to triage and I kind of explained what was going on. They had me pee in a cup. They took some blood and within minutes they came back and said, you have severe preeclampsia. You're not going anywhere. Mm. And so then I texted my mom as all people do. And I just said, mom, I'm admitted to the hospital. I have preeclampsia. I need, you know, whatever. And she's like, I'm coming. So she took work off that day and she came to the hospital, but they said, you're not going anywhere. We're just going to monitor you now until you deliver. It could be today. It could be in weeks, but we're just going to monitor you here from on out. So I was officially put on bed rest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And did you know what preeclampsia was? I honestly, I had heard of it because friends of mine had had preeclampsia at like 38 weeks and it wasn't super concerning for them. And so honestly, I didn't, I wasn't really concerned. I was like, oh, it's just preeclampsia. Okay. That's fine. Like a lot of my friends have had that and their babies are great. So I truthfully wasn't super worried. But then when they start to ask you, like, if you start to see spots or have a seizure or, you know, do these things, let us know. So then my anxiety was like, I'm oh my have gosh. A seizure. And so they put me on magnesium, which is a swear word. Um, yep. Mm-hmm. And I was put in a on moment of silence <laughs> for magnesium. <laughs> Seriously. So, yeah, yeah, I was put on magnesium and just monitored. Wow. And how did the magnesium feel in your body? Was it great? It was so great. I just felt like my best self. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was pretty awful. I really just felt super warm and just out of it. I don't remember much of that day. Um, but when they started to kind of say, you know, we're going to monitor you, put you on bed rest. I brought up, I said, but what about his heart? Mm-hmm. And they looked at me and they were like, his heart. And I was like, oh, can I have man. you, can I have you peek at his charts? And so sure enough, they went and peeked at his charts and they came out and they said, Oh, <laughs> so we need to make a couple calls. And they said, because of your condition, like you could deliver any day. It could be months. It could be full term, but it could be today. And so because there's a possibility, we want to air flight you to your hospital, the new hospital. Yeah. And how, I mean, who was with you when you got that news and how did you receive it? Like, how were you feeling? I was with just Ryan and I look back on those texts now and it's just like surreal because it was like every 10 minutes the update was changing. You know, it was like, okay, I've been put on bed rest. I have preeclampsia. Okay. There's a possibility I might be air flighted. Okay. There's a possibility that, you know, so it felt like when I look back on text, it was changing every 10 minutes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And how quickly did it move at that point? It was very quickly. So I think by um, 10 a.m. I was basically – they were ready to send me. And I don't think I quite understood what it would mean to be air flighted. Um, You know, I had seen like the helicopter pad here and there. I had very like – you know, I don't know. But it was different because I wasn't on a helicopter. I was on just like a normal flight plane. And so they strapped me into the ambulance bed thing. And that was a unique experience because they, like, strap your legs and they strap, like, all your – you know, whatever. And I remember the hardest part was, like, saying goodbye to my family. Um, Mm. And I remember just being, like, I have no idea. I have no idea what this means for me or Silas. And, you know, Ryan 
he decided to drive because he wanted to pack our stuff because we didn't know how long we'd be in the city. So he said, Ash, I'm going to pack all your favorite stuff. And he did. He packed like all of my favorite things. He's so wonderful. He packed all my favorite sweatpants and everything. But we basically had to say goodbye to each other. And so I remember just like looking out the just like the doors and just seeing my family there. We were all a mess. We were all crying, you know, hoping that it was going to be okay, but really just having no idea. I I can't I mean just because I know how wonderful you are my heart just aches for you in that moment <laughs> and how close you are with your family too and I think this is the part about Nikki that's really hard to describe to people is just that you have to do it and often you have to do it entirely alone yeah yeah I mean just terrifying and I mean of course terrifying for your partner too who then mm-hmm. has to get in a car and drive four hours right yeah um, um, how, and, and I assume they, there wasn't the beverage cart on the flight. <laughs> there was not the beverage cart. No. Okay. Um, so it was a very small plane. Um, I actually had the guy take a picture of me cause I wanted a picture. I was like, I need to get one photo of this. Yeah. And so he took a picture of me and I'm this like swollen balloon, but I had my box of tissues in my hands and I'm really grateful I have that photo today. It's cool. Um, it's a great picture. We should add it to the, <laughs> I'll put it in my bio thing. Um, but yeah, it was basically, they had one nurse available in case he was delivered on the plane. So they had oh a my NICU gosh. nurse. Um, they had a nurse just for me and then they had, you know, just a medic on the plane as well. And the team was remarkable. Um, they kind of had this perfect balance of being comical and also being, you know, they knew their job. And so they made it really lighthearted. Um, but it was winter. And so I remember looking out the window and just seeing like snow, you know, and then Mm -hmm. anytime we, you know, I could just see, it was just a different experience, but you know, it was surreal too, because I had this like, I had this sense of peace amidst it all as well. And so I remember being terrified that I was alone, but also feeling like total peace from the Holy Spirit as well as we were in the air. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And when you landed, there were more surprises, right? (laughs) There were. Um, So throughout the plane ride, they kept saying to me like these, I know that this ambulance bed is kind of uncomfortable. So if you experience any back pain, just let me know and I can get you some pillows and stuff. And so sure enough, I was having like a really bad back pain and I kept asking for pillows. And so I get to this new hospital and I'm, I'm laying there and I'm still on magnesium. So I'm kind of out of it. And she comes up to me and she's like, so you've been having some contractions. And I was like, what? And she's like, have you been feeling them in your lower back? And I was like, that's what those are. (laughs) And so I find out that I was having contractions and those were what those lower back pain wanted. It wasn't because of the the bed of the um of the plane. It was because I was having lower back contractions. And so she said, We just want to do an ultrasound to make sure that baby is positioned well in case you would have to deliver. And so um they come and do they do the ultrasound, they do all these things, and I meet the nurse who would then um, say both be and Silas, but she's coming in and I'm looking at her badge and I'm like, hmm. And again, I'm on magnesium, so I'm kind of out of it. And I just look at her and I'm like, are you this hospital? And she looks at me and she's like, no, I'm this hospital. <laughs> and I was like, are you guys connected? Like, I kind of felt like I was drunk or something. Like, I was like, I'm feeling really stupid. And she's like, no. And I said, I'm at the wrong hospital. Ugh. 
And she looks at me and she's like, what? And I was like, I'm supposed to be at this hospital. And so she quick goes and grabs like the head nurse and she comes in and I show her my confirmation email from the hospital I was supposed to be at and all of my records I've had there. And she looked at me and she's like, I'm going to need a minute. (laughs) And so Ryan is driving. And at this point, I call him and I say, Ryan, don't freak out. But I'm at the wrong hospital. Oh, my gosh. What? I was like, so change your GPS coordinations to get to this one. And so this this nurse comes back and she says, here's the deal. If you want, we can transfer you. But because you are having contractions where we don't advise that because you could deliver on the ambulance. And so I called Ryan and I was like, what do we do? And so we ultimately decided to stay. We just, it was too risky. We just didn't know. And later, I'm actually very grateful we were brought to this hospital. I fell in love with it. But at the moment, it was a little terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And it's just one more element of what on top of your entire experience. Like like someone could have come in like you're – like Justin Timberlake could have come in and be like, I am your surgeon. And then you'd be I like, know. that's it. That's I the know. last thing. We joke about it now. It's kind of a funny joke now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, uh, I wonder too, like, so you get there and how long is it that you're sitting there waiting for Ryan and as time goes by? Yeah. So I actually was able to nap a little bit. Um, I was pretty sleepy from the magnesium. So I was in and out every once in a while, but, um, all of a sudden I wake up to the sweet little kiss on my forehead from Ryan and it's about 545. And so he got to the hospital about 530, kind of had to find his parking spot, kind of get registered. Um, but at about 545, he enters the room and he's like, how's it going? I'm like, I think it's okay. Everything looks all right. But the nurse comes in and just says, hey, would you have to use the restroom or anything? Everything's looking okay. I just want to make sure that you don't need to go to the bathroom. And so I was like, actually, that sounds kind of nice. I wouldn't mind going to the restroom. And so she helps me go to the bathroom and I use the restroom. Everything seems fine until I wipe and there's a significant amount of blood. And so I just said, hey, something seems off and I'm bleeding. And she wasn't too concerned about the bleeding. Um, until I said that I felt like I was about to faint. So I started walking back to my hospital bed and I almost passed out. And I just said, Ryan, I feel like I could throw up. Something's not right. And immediately she presses the C-section button. And all of a sudden I'm surrounded by a huge medical team and she's putting the monitor at me and she's like, I can't find his heartbeat. I can't find his heartbeat. Mm. And then she finds it and it's super (sighs) low. And so she says, we we need to do an emergency C-section. So the OB comes in. And mind you, Ryan still has his winter coat on from driving. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And I look back at him. He looks back at me. And his hands are on his head. It was just like the most surreal moment. And the OB just says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you, Ashley. I'm going to take care of you. And I said, but do you know about his heart? Do you know about his heart? And she says, we know about his heart. And so... All of a sudden, I'm wheeled into an operating room, and I'm put on oxygen. I'm put out, and that's about all that I can remember from that point. (laughs) I just – I'm sitting here five miles away from you in tears. I just (laughs) – you know, it's – it's not often that you think about the people you love going through things like this. And I think about you and Ryan and that experience. And like you said, like just the image with him with his hands on his head, just the the pure shock. 
like none of it feels real. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, my heart just aches for you in that moment. And, <laughs> and like you show like to every mom is like, but what about the baby, the baby, the baby, you know, you're just mm-hmm. every last ounce of fight or flight in your body is just mm-hmm. fighting for Silas. It's just, it's at one time just like so heartbreaking, but also just incredible too. Like it just, you're so mm-hmm. strong when you have nothing left in you. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you first remember from waking up? So the first thing I remember from waking up is I see Ryan, which I'm really grateful for. Um, because I'm super confused at this point. And yeah. I see Ryan and I say, How Silas? And he shows me this picture. And, you know, a NICU newborn picture isn't as bundled up as, you know, right. a typical. And so all I see is him sprawled out with his, his lips almost look like a fish because he's intubated. And I'm just really confused. But he was still so beautiful to me. I was like, Wow. And, but he just says, He's doing okay. He's, you know, he was he's breathing, he cried, you Mm. know, and, um, I look over uh, past Ryan and all of a sudden I see my mom and my dad. And then I also Mm. see my aunt and uncle, which I was like, what? But my dad had called my aunt and uncle because they had had a preemie at 26 weeks. And so Mm. they knew this world, they knew, you know, how I would be feeling. And so it was actually really special that they could be Mm. there. But I woke up to family and, um, you know, they just kind of said, you know, we're here for you. We're here for you and Silas. And so, you know, I woke up to a room full of family, which I was really grateful for. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, I love that your parents thought of that. Like, I love that they said, we love our daughter so much. Mm -hmm. We cannot empathize with this specific situation. So we're going to find the, everybody we know <laughs> yeah. that has gone through it and, and we're going to make it happen. So she never mm-hmm. feels alone. I just love mm-hmm. that about your parents. Um, and, and how long were you in post-op after, after the surgery? So my blood pressure was not wanting to come down. So, um, I was monitored pretty closely after I delivered and I was kind of obviously coming out of anesthesia and things like that. So, um, I think I was in the post-op room and, um, they had led me to my new room. So where I would actually be at for the next few days. And they kind of explained to me like the protocols for going and visiting and things like that. And I just found it so surreal that I hadn't seen him yet. You know, I was like, "But, but how is he, what is he doing? And, and things like that. And so I was getting my blood pressure checked every every hour and it wasn't going down. It wasn't going down. So they were a little nervous to let me see him and be in, you know, out of the room, but I just needed to see him. I was like, I have to see him. And so um, they put me on my bed, like the hospital bed thing, and they wheeled me down there. And um, that was obviously my first introduction <laughs> to the NICU. I was still kind of out of it from everything. But they wheeled me into this dark, warm room with a bunch of monitors and beeps and, you know, a lot of incubators, which I had no grid work for, you know, for prior. And they wheel me up to this beautiful little incubator. And they say, this is your son, Silas. And it was really hard to see him through those little holes because I was like, laying on that stretcher, you know? And so I was like, can you lower me? I can't, I can't see him. I can't see, you know, where he's at. And so, um, you know, my first, my first image of him is just him being intubated, but he was still so beautiful to me. You know, I was like, wow, like he's ours. And, 
and they said you can hand hug him and you can't rub his skin but you can hand hug him and so they mm. said if you if you cup your hand you can touch his head and so I touched his head and I don't want to say there was this large emotion but there was also this just surreal confusion of like this is this is so bizarre like this is not how I envisioned yeah. this I you know yeah. all of that he I couldn't hear him because of his being intubated and so it was really beautiful but it was also just so surreal to be experiencing like my first you know view of him through yeah. through an incubator yeah and if you know Silas too I feel like he had dimples from like day one <laughs> he did yeah he was so cute <laughs> he's still like sometimes you look back on preview pictures I'm like what is this my child yeah but Silas I feel like looked like Silas from day one <laughs> yeah the dimples helped with that for sure for sure for sure um and I you know you now you've been through this roller coaster and of high risk pregnancy, many months of that, and now you're like, okay, here we are in the NICU. You had your aunt and uncle, but did you understand what NICU meant? How long it would be? You know, um, you know what it meant for your family in that postpartum time. Yeah, no, um, you know, really the only close people in my life we had were them. And then I knew of somebody from my church who had also had a preemie. And so that was kind of my only grid. I had never had a close friend who had experienced it. Really, I hadn't followed any like preemie accounts or anything like that. So I really had no grid for it. The unique thing too, was that they, um, you know, we didn't live in the city. And so they started to talk about making a transfer possible, but all of it was, you know, based on how he was doing and so, you know, they did the scans every day, the brain scans, and then they really monitored his heart to know if they needed to do surgery. And so every day was kind of like multiple scans, just kind of monitoring everything. And it was a total miracle. But one day they came to us and said, he does not need the heart surgery. He does not have the co-arc. Um, his heart looks great. There's just, um, you know, the the hole, which most kids have anyways. And so we were blown away. We were like, wow, he doesn't need the surgery. That's miraculous. And so they started to talk about making a transfer possible. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, it was just kind of monitoring every day, you know, and I was stuck in the hospital too, because my blood pressure wouldn't regulate. So I, you know, it would go up and down, up and down. And I was kind of experiencing the the headaches again and the nausea, which was kind of a, a factor. And so I was readmitted at this hospital and then put on blood pressure medication. So that had to get regulated before there was even a chance of us coming home too. So mm. we were at this hospital, I believe it was for 10 days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it must've just been like such a celebration when, with the news about his heart too. I mean, it must've yeah. just felt like, oh, praise God, we have a win, you know? Yeah. And <laughs> Um, and it changed things out. And so then you could think about transferring home. And is that what you really, that's what you wanted? Yeah, we did. I think it was really hard to be so far away from our support system, you know, even though it was only a matter of a few hours, like that made a really big difference. And because we're so close to our families, we did want to be close to, to grandparents and to family that could help us. So when they even started to mention the words transfer, it was a huge, huge deal. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so what was the transfer like? I mean, how did he even transfer a baby in an incubator, you know, 300, 400 miles? <laughs> yeah, so we went down to the NICU the day that he was going to be transferred, and I see this little, like, it wasn't the plastic shields anymore. It almost looked like a 
like a lunchbox. <laughs> like it had like a bunch of Velcro and like it looked more padded and stuff like that. And I was like, oh. And I mean, it was bigger than a lunchbox, but like the material kind of looked that way. And and they kind of showed me and explained to me, you know, this is how we're going to transport him and we're going to have a nurse just for him to monitor his CPAP levels and all this stuff. And I remember it was really, really difficult to think about being separated from him and, you know, the thought of putting our two pound baby on a plane was just excruciating, but we did know that we wanted to be home and, and they said that like the care he would receive there would be wonderful. So we trusted that. Yeah. Um, but it was still like a huge leap of faith to trust putting him on a plane. And so we decided that we wanted to be there when he arrived versus like following him. Cause we knew he'd get there so much faster than us. And so that morning we decided to drive. And so we, you know, before we left, we went to his little incubator and we just said, we love you, Silas. We'll see you in a little bit. And it just felt so wrong to be driving. Oh, yeah. and, um, but we get to the new hospital and while the hospital was wonderful, it was a completely different environment. I think the hardest thing to, to understand was that, you know, at the previous hospital, it was an open nursery type room. So there was multiple babies, which also meant multiple nurses at all times. And at this new hospital, you had your own room. And yeah. while that was a blessing down the road, because we did have a little bit of a longer stay, it was really, really hard to understand why there wasn't a nurse always in his room. Yeah. And so yeah. we got checked into our room and it was just kind of like, okay. And then he, he gets brought in and, um, we see him again and we're so grateful that he's there, but immediately as they're putting him in his incubator, he has his first major DSAT mm-hmm. and I don't know what's happening. I'm talking to the, the OB check nurse came and checked in on me, but I was like, I don't care. I want to know like what's going on with Silas. And he had his first major DSAT. And I remember just like being in complete shock. I immediately lost it. I was so confused. There wasn't a nurse in the room right away just because they have their phones or whatever. And so I, all of a sudden the nurse comes in and she just taps him and he's fine, but it was just like surreal. And so it really took us time to adapt to this new you know, way of NICU, if you will, just understanding what it meant to not have like five nurses in one room at all times. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it, and even it's so interesting because it's even just the fact that they can, they're for some, like in the same space and can even glance over or be like, right. hey, baby, when they're walking by, you know? Right. Yeah. It just yeah. feels so different. And I mean, of course, you understand, you know, you understand why a lot of hospitals are going to that model. Yes. But it is, it feels so, and of course you had like such a, there's a stress, a stark contrast, right? Like all of a sudden there were tons of nurses and then there's just no one. And Mm -hmm. there's no, nothing more terrifying than just sitting in a room and watching your baby's heart rate, Mm -hmm. uh, like charge towards zero. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's awful. And it's so, um, and, you know, I think the majority of NICUs really do the best that they can to explain it, but you don't yeah. understand what's happening, Yeah. Um, especially the first few times. And then they're also, like you mentioned, they come in and talk to you and they're trying to like have a conversation while it's happening. You're like, wait, 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 what? Can you stop for a second? Because I need to watch what's happening here. I think one thing that was really powerful was there was one of the main, um, the NPs and she could tell that I just, I was really struggling to trust the new nurses. I just was like you know, you're not in here all the time. How am I supposed to trust you? How are you supposed Mm. to know? I just, it took me a little bit. 
And I remember she could kind of tell, she could kind of figure out that I was feeling a little unsettled. And so she came into the room and she like kneeled in front of me. I was sitting on the chair and she just said, Ashley, your trust is something that I want to earn. And she's like, I do not expect you to trust me today. I don't expect you to trust me tomorrow, but it's something that I want to earn. And just hearing her say that made it feel much, so much more safe. I was like, wow, okay, like you're not making me feel bad for not trusting you right away. You are acknowledging that like I need to earn that trust. And so from that point on, it changed everything for me. I finally was like, okay, earning my trust, what does that look like? How can I, you know, and so by the end of our stay, I 100% trusted them. I was really grateful for our own room, but just having her acknowledge that my trust was something that she had to earn really was, I felt very humble on her part and really made a huge difference in the care that I felt like we received. Yeah. You know what I think um, is also wise about what you just said is that you like made it clear, um, I think from the start, because it's your nature and something I admire about you, but you're, you really introduced yourself into his care immediately and you said, if I'm not comfortable with it, th- there's something wrong and you made that apparent. Um, obviously not in a, in a, a belligerent way, but you, right. yeah. it's really important to know, say, I feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. because um, – I know that I was just like, you know, I wish I had been like that more. I wish I had been more vocal about it, especially at the beginning mm-hmm. um, because it feels like foreign and it's like, where's, what's my place here? But you show how to do that really well. And then just like that incredible provider said to you, like, you're right. They, ha- they are taking care of your baby. You're the mom. So mm-hmm. they have to earn your trust. I think that's really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I just so admire your bravery and courage to say, um, no, and to raise your hand through the whole experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was grateful that they gave me that permission. I felt like our team was really intentional to reiterate that, you know, you are mom, yeah. we are provider. I felt like they really did their best to maintain those clear boundaries. And that really meant a world of difference for me as we, you know, began to trust and really, um, you know, trust the medical teams for sure. Yeah. That's awesome. But I still want to say that you're amazing. I oh. just want everyone to go on record and say that I think you're great. That's what I'm trying to get across. You're the best. You're like, no, the providers. And I'm like, no, you. <laughs> I love you. So, I mean, that's – you've already been through so many traumatic events. And now you shift from the high-risk pregnancy and the delivery. And now you're like in this like that – what do they call it? The feeder grower time, which mm-hmm. is for so many journeys like the f- most frustrating part because it's mm-hmm. forward and back and up and down and forward mm-hmm. and back you know, constantly. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what were some of Silas's like a major setbacks and, and um, wins and milestones that he experienced in the NICU? And how did you experience them too? Yeah, Silas's NICU journey was um, relatively uneventful, which we were grateful for. I would say that his, his first big hurdle was just oxygen. He really, um, he was into, you know, um, extubated really quickly, but then we were on CPAP for quite a while. And it, it was just, you know how it is, like every day you're watching those numbers and that CPAP beep is so annoying and it's so loud, but you're so grateful that they have something, you know, but it was just every day we were like, maybe we'll wean. And then you get, you know, one provider wants to kind of push him and the other provider wants him to tell us, you know, and it's like (laughs) every day it was kind of up and down. And so I felt like we were on level seven CPAP for like ever. And then we were on level six CPAP, you know, and it just felt like oxygen was always kind of a little bit of a struggle for 
for Silas. And so that was kind of our first big hurdle. Um, and then of course you get to the feeding and once he was able to be on the high flow and low flow, then we could start the bottling, which is really rewarding just because I was pumping so much. And so once we got to that point, um, you know, we still kind of started to run into some setbacks and it was kind of frustrating because finally the oxygen would be under control, but then the feeding was kind of struggling. Yes. And so I remember texting you cause we had connected at this point and I just said, He's uncomfortable and it's affecting his oxygen, but it's not like – it doesn't feel like a breathing issue. It feels like a tummy issue. And so I remember asking the the NP and I said, could it be anything with food? And they were like, I really don't think so. It's just breast milk fortified. Like I really think it's okay. And I was like, but I don't know about it. And so finally, I, I texted you about Elicare because I knew that JJ had been on Elicare. Yeah, and, and the cake, yeah, most expensive formula on earth, expensive and smelliest. Um, yes, um, but I remember bringing it up, and I just said, "What about formula? What about Elicare?" Which kind of broke my heart because I had a whole freezer full of milk. But oh, yes. at this point, I just wanted him to be comfortable, and so you know, they finally kind of let me decide. They're like, okay, if you want to try it, we'll try it. And it was night and day. Yeah. Um, as soon as we put him on formula, his oxygen levels were beautiful. His, um, his eating, he could take full bottles and it was just miraculous. And it was really cool because his speech even saw it too. You know, she was like, once he eats, it's not really an eating issue. It's a stomach issue. You can tell that it, it hurts. And so mm. once we switched to the the Elicare, it was like night and day. And that's really when we started to see some progress. And I would say the final like setback or kind of, I don't know, setback, but final procedure that he needed done was we knew that he had hernias. And so one of those hernias was actually in his scrotum, which turned out to be so painful for him, which was excruciating. And so there was one day we had the surgery on the books for, it was like a week away. And, um, he was just in a lot of pain and he wasn't the type of baby to cry a lot. He wasn't a fussy baby. He was actually super calm. And so when he cried and we knew something was wrong. And so I remember this specific nurse, um, bless her heart, but I, I was really concerned because he was in a lot of pain. He was really crying. I could tell. And I just said to her, you know, I really think something is wrong. I think he needs to be seen like something is not right. And she's like, well, what makes you think that? And I was like, because he's crying. And she looked at me and said, well, newborns cry. So I think he's just a baby. And mama bear came out and I said, excuse me. And so I said, you will call an NP in this room right now. And so the NP came in, (laughs) the NP came in and sure enough, the hernia had happened again. And so she had to hold his scrotum for 30 minutes until the intestine went back into its regular position. (gasps) Oh my gosh. And after that, I just said, is there any way he can have surgery sooner than a week away? And so we scheduled it for the next day. And so he had his hernia repair the next day. And after that, we saw, again, just more improvement in his oxygen just because he wasn't in pain. You know, I don't blame him. I mean, it was hard to just be a baby when you're in such pain. And so after that, it was just really relieving that um, he was able to just be comfortable and that that had been repaired. And so after that, they started talking about discharge. And by the, at this point, he was taking full feeds. We decided to not try breastfeeding at that point and just stick to the Alicare. I kept pumping, but um, it was just something that we planned to introduce at a later time. But they started talking about discharge, and then the day the day finally came. So, ah, 
I remember this time so well. So it's so fun. I'm like, I'm in this part. Um, I, I mean, this is what you've been waiting for now for like a hundred months. Mm-hmm. What did it feel like to bring him through the doors of your house? It was so special. It was, you know, of course you have minor anxiety about like, okay, we're out of the hospital, but ultimately we were just so thrilled. We were so excited and I remember we brought him into his room and it was just, it was so miraculous to see him in our home and, and just to see him in the place that we've been in and not connected to tubes and wires and not miles and miles away from us. And so we were truthfully just, we were so ecstatic. We were so excited. I I mean, and you talked a little bit about this too. And I remember kind of living with this with living through this with you, but the idea that you could like introduce him to different people was so special. Um, Mm-hmm. But I know too, when you're in that um, time after NICU, your body starts to kind of say, oh, I'm safe a little bit. And then that's sometimes where the PTSD to, could come out. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about how that felt for you. Yeah. I think the way that my PTSD was shown the most was just in not really just not like trusting myself, not feeling like we were really okay. You know, there's always that part of you that's like, but is he really supposed to be discharged? Is it really, is it really okay? Yeah. And I think where mine showed up the most was just in persistently checking his breathing. We didn't do, we didn't do the outlet. We didn't do any of those things we did. Um, just like a video monitor. And of course he slept in our room, so he was right next to me, but just waking up and just quick jumping out of bed and checking his breathing, you know, is he breathing? Is he okay? And so I think for me, that's where I saw mine come up the most. And truthfully, another thing too, and I, I think this is really common among the NICU community, but it was like, I had kind of OCD behaviors about cleanliness. Right. I was just hyper aware of germs. Um, you know, we didn't bring him out into the public for a while, but it was just like, even though we were the only ones home, we were the only ones living there. It was like no surface could be clean enough. And so I think that was an adjustment. But one thing that I did even in the NICU is I started to see a therapist while I was in the NICU. And I wanted to do that because I knew my tendencies. I knew that I could, that I would wrestle with anxiety. I knew that about myself. And so when I was in the NICU, I started to see a trauma informed therapist and that made a world of difference. And so there wasn't much that my brain could function to do as a new mom, but I just, I knew that I had to schedule those appointments. And so, um, I would see my, I was also regularly seeing my therapist as soon as we came home, just cause I knew I needed to. Yeah. I, it's just one of the things about you. I mean, even like the fact that you wanted to get coffee with me, right. When you were still yeah. in the NICU, all these things that I think showed that, um, it, it was hard, of course. Everything mm-hmm. you went through was hard. But I think you had this resiliency and determination of like, no, I will get through this. You know yourself really well. Um, and the fact that you did those things so early on. I mean, a lot of a lot of moms don't pursue treatment or mental health support for years after. And I just – I was always so in awe of you about how mm-hmm. you were just, just a, a freaking warrior, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's just astounding, and it's one of the things you model so well for your friends and for the people around you. You just doggedly mm-hmm. fight for um, Silas and for your marriage, mm-hmm. and then for yourself too. It's just mm-hmm. it's amazing. Mm-hmm. 
I love you so much and you're the most wonderful person alive. So there, <laughs> I, I said so it. <laughs> um, you know, as we kind of close it out here, I wonder if you could share, you know, you had such a wild journey. What advice would you have for high-risk mamas or women who are labeled as high-risk really early on and have a full pregnancy of ups and downs? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, not to sound super basic, but the first one would be don't Google anything. Yeah. Um, I think understanding that, you know, I, I always had to remind myself that it's the job of the high-risk pregnancy experts to tell me everything about my baby. And so if you go into an appointment and you're just not ready to hear everything, it's okay to speak up and just say, just tell me what I need to know today. And maybe tomorrow I can hear the rest. Or there were times at appointments where I could only hear so much and I and I was like trying to take notes, right? You're just, it's just a blur when you hear these things. And so I would set up a, a telehealth or a phone appointment at a later date when I could really intake the information. I think hmm. sometimes the initial shock is just so much that it's just like, wait, what did they say? And mm-hmm. so really advocating for yourself and for your baby and just saying, hey, can we set up an appointment later where you can really explain this to me when I'm not in shock of the diagnosis um, was really was really helpful to me. Um, And I think, again, just a simple practice would be if you need to guard your heart for what you follow on social media, it's okay. Mm -hmm. I remember that was one – you said something when we got coffee. You just said to me, you know, I have to unfollow birth accounts because it breaks my heart. And when I heard you say it breaks my heart, that was kind of the perfect – rhetoric for how I was feeling. It wasn't like I was angry at them for having a nice birth. I was, you know, it was never like any harm. It was just, it hurt. It hurt to see somebody else's reality be so, so vastly different from my own. And so I think that helped give me permission of just like, you know what, this breaks my heart right now. And at a later season in my life, I might be ready to follow those accounts again. But for right now to care for my heart, I might need to unfollow. And so you know, just do whatever your heart needs to. And if that means unfollowing birth accounts for a season or, you know, I had to um, uninstall the what to expect app, especially after Silas was born, because those obviously didn't apply to me anymore. Um, And so just, you know, making your phone as safe of a place as it can be. I know that's kind of hard with social media, but if that means, you know, unfollowing or muting different accounts, then that's absolutely Mm -hmm. okay. Or you can even mute your friends' accounts. If you yeah, want. yeah. I'm just saying, not it's not true. The, even if it's I for a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Total. I think that's really beautiful. Um, can I celebrate one thing that you did that was super cool too? <gasps> sure. You, I love you. Took the most beautiful pictures of Silas in the NICU, <laughs> but you also just you did so many things to celebrate him and to make to normalize the experience. Um, and I was like, nothing is coming in this room, no stuffed animal. And I just, I, I look back and I just think it's so cool how you were like, this is hard, but he's doing amazing, and I, you know, every moment he was loved on, and that is just mm-hmm. so cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything else, you know, uh, that you want to share to the sister now that you've been able to kind of really pro- verbally process through your whole journey? It's so mm-hmm. cool to hear it. Yeah. I think, you know, I always want to be careful, you know, being a co-founder of Dear Nikki Mama, like I never want to present this image that I've healed and I'm, I'm good now. You know, I think, um, when we created Dear Nikki Mama, it selfishly was also for my own healing and, mm-hmm. It's proven that way, you know, 
yes, we get to tell these stories and, you know, we get to be the, the host, but really your stories transform me every time I get to hear them too. And so, um, I think just to remind you that I'm still healing and, you know, Silas is doing really well. He's perfect and beautiful and magical Mm -hmm. and, but I'm still healing. And, and so I think I've just had to give myself that permission that, there will be days when I feel really whole and there will be days when I feel really broken, but it doesn't affect my worth. And so totally for any mamas listening, if you're still healing, you're still worthy. And, um, on the good days you're worthy and on the hard days you're worthy. So Mm. (sighs) yeah. That's so beautiful. Oh my gosh. This is the coolest episode ever. I'm going to go back and re-listen to it because I have like your action figure, but, uh, (laughs) Well, Ashley, thank you so much mm-hmm. as your friend and your business partner and your number one fan. I, it is just like the biggest gift to be able to hear your story and hear mm-hmm. you tell it. You, again, another one thing I admire about you is how vulnerable you are and you just make um, everyone feel comfortable and, and welcome to your story and to your space. You make them feel like they belong to the sisterhood that you lead. You know what I mean? Like your Wonder Woman on the horse at the front. Um, but I, I just love that about you. And so thank you for sharing today. This has been really amazing. Um, and mamas, I'm going to do my best to do the closeout. Ashley normally does this and I've tried it before and I failed. So we're going to give it our best shot. Uh, as always, Nikki mamas, we want you to know that you are not alone. You're braver than you feel. And we are here for you when, when you feel at your lowest, just know that you are part of a sisterhood that will always be there for you Mm -hmm. until next time. If you love this podcast and would like to hear more amazing stories, please consider becoming a member of the Dear NICU Mama Patreon page. In addition to special merchandise and early access to content, Patreon members support the mission, programs, and services of Dear NICU Mama. You can find the link on the description of this episode. As always, if you'd like to hear more from Dear NICU Mama, click subscribe. Welcome to the sisterhood.